Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 144 for the week ending March 8th, 2019, the Conferencing in America edition. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of the stories that caught Jay and myself's collective eyes this week includes the massive MTS FCPA settlement, how the CTFT will follow the lead of the Department of Justice on enforcement and the SEC on whistleblowers, Hacienda Healthcare is one of the worst corporate governance failures ever, Galnara Karamova may finally be coming to justice. We ask our consumers, the new regulators of the global business practices, are boards getting sufficient information on risk, and is Baker McKenzie in deep trouble over the JBF settlement in Brazil? We consider the announcement by Dutch prosecutors that they will be prosecuting Shell Oil Company criminally for payments of monies to the Nigerian government directly, which they claim constitute a bribe. Jay talks about his new role as a featured columnist on the newly designed, redesigned rather, Corporate Compliance Insights, and we shout out to Sarah Haddon, the new editor-in-chief. I review the opinion release papers that I have discussed this week on my signature podcast, the FCPA Compliance Report. This Week in FCPA is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 145 for the week ending, March 8th, 2019, the Conferencing in America edition. Uh, This week, Jay and I are conferencing, albeit in different uh, disciplines and different locales. So first of all, uh, Jay, uh, where are you today and what are you conferencing on? I am podcasting from the city of New Orleans, and uh, I'm just wrapping up attending the American Bar Association White Collar Crime Conference. Uh, we have a couple sessions later on this morning. Uh, Brian Benskowski is going to speak, and then there's going to be a session to wrap up. So that's what I'm doing today. And where are you coming from? So I'm coming to you from the Wyndham Resort in Orlando, Florida, lovely uh, Orlando, Florida, at PodFest Expo, where I'm learning uh, more intricacies about podcasting and finding lots of cool toys to spend my podcast money on. So, uh, Jay, we had, uh, since this is a PG podcast, just one heck of a week in the FCPA. So you want to just jump into it? Yeah, let's uh why don't you tell us what is happening with uh, MTS's massive SCPA resolution? 
So we had uh, the Russian mobile, biggest mobile phone company agrees to pay $850 million in penalties to the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission to resolve FCPA violations. This makes it, this uh, MTS is number three on the all-time uh, FCPA hit list now. As of the um, time we recorded this, we did not have the Department of Justice uh, charging documents or re- resolution documents available but the Securities and Exchange Commission settled via an administrative order. The Department of Justice, uh, or rather, uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission noted that this was the uh, third major payment around uh, bribery and corruption in Uzbekistan, specifically Gulnara Karamova, the former or the daughter of the former president. And we had Vimplecom in 2016. We had Tilia. Of Vimple Comet $795 million. In 2018, we had Tilia at $965 million, and now we have uh, MTS. So obviously lots of corruption going on. Uh, in another segment, we're going to talk about what has happened to Carnova this week, but uh, just a stunning uh, development. I can't wait to dive into it and, and really take a deep dive. If I can give a little hint, Mike Volkoff and I are going to do the first podcast analysis of this case, and we'll be posting that Sunday afternoon uh, for everyone. And this information comes to us from Harry Casson, who broke the story, continuing his father's great tradition of really being the leading voice of getting stories out uh, on the uh, FCPA and FCPA settlements. We also link to the uh, SEC cease and desist order in the show notes. So uh, keeping things in the Casson family, uh Dick Casson has not let any uh, grass grow under his feet, and we've got an article from yesterday, Practice Alert, the CFTC will investigate and prosecute FCPA violations. Um, they had a session here the other day called um, Ask the Regulators, and there was uh, folks there from the DOJ and from the SEC and from the CFTC, which is Commodity Futures Trading Commission, And uh, basically, they said that they will work alongside DOJ and SEC to investigate foreign bribery. Um, And what was kind of interesting is they're saying that now they might even be looking at things like people trying to manipulate LIBOR or trying to do things with uh, commodities. And these could also be illegal uh, schemes that people could be... uh, tipping some of the indices to really uh, get an economic advantage. So uh, it seems that there are probably some of these cases that are in the pipeline, and that is why they chose to announce it. What was just kind of weird from a procedural perspective is that um, the gentleman from the CFTC, uh, after they announced, after they introduced everyone, James McDonald got up and he took about, you know, 20 minutes delivering prepared remarks and it kind of cut into the ability for the other chiefs to speak. But it's nice to see that uh, CFTC is getting involved. They talked that there wouldn't be any piling on, but uh, and they also reaffirmed their commitments to whistleblowers. So uh, it was an interesting session. And as we said earlier, um, Assistant AG Brian Benskowski is going to speak later on this morning. And if there's anything uh, newsworthy there, I'm sure we can do an update to the podcast. Uh, next up, Tom. Uh, Matt Kelly is horrified by what happened at Hacienda Healthcare. Why don't you tell us about that? 
Well, Jay, you, me, and the rest of the world should actually be horrified at this. This is one of the worst corporate governance nightmares ever. And, of course, this is Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, the coolest guy in compliance, writing about this. Matt and I also did a podcast on it. So if you want to take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds, check out this week's episode 113 of Compliance Into the Weeds. But the story revolves around Hacienda Healthcare, which had the horrible situation of a female patient, a 29-year-old woman who'd been in a vegetative state for nearly a decade, was discovered pregnant and actually delivered a baby boy on December 29th. A male nurse at the facility was subsequently arrested and charged with rape. Uh, Obviously, that's horrifying in and of itself, but uh, this past week, or rather uh, at the end of February, a former prosecutor uh, from Maricopa County who had been hired to investigate the, the incident resigned because he said the board of directors created intolerable working conditions and complicated the abil- his ability to be successful, and they, frankly, he could not ju- do his job in an effective manner. The next day, uh, the newly hired CEO, who had joined only in mid-January, uh, quit. The CCO, uh, who had been with the company uh, significantly longer, uh, who had been in the CCO uh, position since um, 2015, also quit. Rather than accept these resignations, the chairman, a 35-year chairman, uh, a gentleman named Tom Pomeroy, fired all three and had the police escort them from Hacienda offices. That prompted another board member to resign in protest. The next day, five senior uh, executives from the company also tendered their resignation. Um, that was all on uh, February 28th. On March 1, um, Pomeroy himself s- stepped down. So... Um, Really just a complete foobar, uh, once again, holding to our PG uh, content because of your daughters who might want to listen. But um, uh, really just as horrific as it can get, starting with the rape of the patient and then on to the uh, corporate governance foobars. It's going to be interesting to see what the state of Arizona does and what, if any, criminal charges uh, they might bring going forward. Uh, Jay, I started out at the top of the show talking about the stunning uh, week in FCPA, and I uh, I talked about Gulnara Karamova, but there was some specific information on her. Uh, You want to tell our listeners about that? Sure, and uh, once again, we're keeping it in the Kasson family. This is from the FCPA blog. Uh, The DOJ unsealed charges Thursday against an Uzbek telecom exec and her daughter, the former Uzbek president, for their roles in an $866 million bribery and money scheme. Gulnara Karmova, 46, who we've spoken about many times before in this podcast, was charged with conspiracy to commit money laundering. Uh, Beksad Akhmadov, the former head of MTS Uzbek subsidiary Uzdunalobita, which I just uh, mangled, was charged with two counts of violating the FCPA, one count of conspiracy to violate the FCPA, and one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. Uh, they arranged for a payment of about $866 million in bribes to Karamova on behalf of their companies. And according to the DOG, DOJ, she conspired to launder the bribes through U.S. bank accounts. Um, as Tom said earlier, before this involved such entities as um, Telia, Vimplecom, 
And now uh, the DOJ, I guess back in 2015, asked authorities in several European countries to freeze about a billion dollars in assets to link to link link to her. So uh, it's been it's been I don't know, but how long she's been out there. But right in plain sight, she's had all this money, and it's uh, really taken a long time for the charges to uh, catch up with her. But now we have uh, a new entrant into the top ten. Correct. Um. Well, we have the new entrance with MTS. The, I think uh, the reason it took so long for the charges is, number one, when her father was in power, uh, she was protected. And after mm-hmm. he uh, left power, uh, the current government actually put her under house arrest. So she's been under house arrest for several years now. And the uh, investigation was literally across the globe. So it frankly didn't surprise me that it took so long uh, to get this, Jay. But fr- the other thing I'm frankly frank about is that she is being brought to justice. Those who paid her being brought to justice. As I mentioned, we've got now three massive settlements with telecom companies. So it shows that the Department of Justice really is committed to uh, rig- rigorous and vigorous enforcement of the FCPA. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what uh comes about these uh, individual criminal charges going forward. So uh, next up, we've got a, a story from Navix Global Ethics and Compliance Matters blog. And the question that we're asking, uh, are consumers the new regulators of global business practices? So, Jay, this comes from Richard Young. He's a contributing editor for uh, Navix Global. And he really, uh, I thought, took a, a very interesting direction uh, whether or not you believe uh, that the U.S. political scene or maybe even the world political scene is becoming more populist, he points out that this populism has extended to uh, the consumer world and uh, the corporate world. And he even went so far as to say uh, there's consumer uh, anarcho-syndicalism for all you poli-sci majors out there or if you went to Harvard or University of Texas, government majors, government as we say in Texas, um, and that uh, social media has become a, a vector for rampant populism, uh, obviously in politics, but also in the corporate world. And the um, Matt Kelly talks about social media as amplification, and that if something happens, it can be amplified literally at the speed of a tweet. And uh, this has given the consumer much more power to uh, enforce standard norms of business practices. And I think we only have to look uh, at a couple of recent examples, the Bond and Viv advertisement that Budweiser put out in uh, the Super Bowl or premiered at the Super Bowl, the uh, blowback from that based upon um, the uh, actress who felt she was uh, harassed and discriminated against, or at least sexually harassed at the audition, excuse me, the casting call for the audition. Um, and he, uh, uh, Richard ends his piece by laying out some, some I thought, some practical guidelines. It all comes down to transparency, so that's obviously going to be key. But he gave some key steps for organizations to take. Aggressively avoid lip service, meaning you got to walk the walk plus talk the talk. Align leadership realistically. That leadership must actually lead by living and breathing ethics communicated to the staff. That's the walk the walk part. Follow the money. Uh, you know, Jonathan Marks continually tells us to follow the money. And uh, stakeholders are going to be, uh, within this context, 
if, if money is going out on decisions that uh, the consumer base feels is on unethical grounds, you're going to uh, be sanctioned in the marketplace for that and your stock price. Be clear and calm that consumer standards of evidence are far lower than regulators, so you have to have uh, uh, a compliance officer's cool, common perspective, uh, cool, common collective perspective. Understand uh, algorithms and the fairness and or unfairness of algorithms. And, and this one I just love. It's entitled Audaciously Live Your Standards. That's not walk the walk. That's not talk the talk. That's taking it up a level. Don't be shy about showcasing how your leaders believe in ethical approaches. And, Jay, I would ask you on that last point, you heard something, I think, at the conference that struck me uh, really as, as this point, audaciously live your standards. It was about a company who said uh, even if they uh, could hire someone to be a top salesman, if they didn't do it the right way, they didn't want them. What was that story, Jay? So this was actually uh, just come out in a Snapchat story earlier this week. And, you know, what really stood out to me and uh, had me posted to LinkedIn was the CEO saying exactly what you said, Tom, that if somebody is making a lot of money for the company, but they are not the right fit, maybe they should go work somewhere else. So I think the days of people being insulated because either they're insiders or they're making money, um, what is happening out here is a bit of a sea change. And when you start to hear a CEO, uh, you know, uh, talking the talk like that, I think um, there has been, as we said earlier, amplifications that are finally uh, making themselves heard at the board level. So, Jay, uh, are um, boards getting enough information to evaluate risk? Yeah, well, that, that kind of dovetails uh, perf- perfectly. Got two articles, uh, one from Kristen uh, Broughton on the uh, Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. And then uh, the coolest guy in compliance, Matt uh, Kelly, also has an article that was published on the Navex blog. Uh, in the journal's articles, they ask uh, corporate boards may be overlooking critical information about emerging risks in areas such as cybersecurity or workplace sexual harassment by relying too heavily on information they receive from management, according to a uh, uh, recent survey by the Institute of Internal Auditors. So three quarters of the respondents, 75%, said directors are very likely to rely on management. Just under half said directors are just as likely to rely on internal auditors. The directors rely on CEOs and uh, that directors rely on CEOs and other senior officials isn't surprising. But what worries auditors, however, is that directors, particularly on the audit committee, may be placing too much weight in assurances they receive from management. Uh, so that's uh, the gist of the article on the journal side. Uh, Matt, as always, takes a little bit of a deeper dive, and he asks the escalation of risk. Is growing board concerned compliance professionals can help ease this? Uh, he talks about a different survey, the latest annual survey of enterprise risk published by Protivity in North Carolina State University, where 800 board members and C-level execs were polled for their top risks. Uh, this uh, two-thirds of the Protivity survey respondents rated escalation risk as significant with their organization, and the overall severity of risk rated on a scale of 1 to 10 has been rising steadily for the past few years. 
Um, Matt digs in a little bit deeper and cause number one, he posits is the risk landscape is changing. It's no secret that risks are proliferating in multiple ways and companies that run more operations through internet-based technologies invite new cybersecurity risks. And then second cause he looks at is company culture leaves internal controls unused. And the more complicated question is how to respond when your escalation procedures are designed uh, improperly. So uh, those are two articles that we link to in the show notes. And uh, next up, this is really interesting, Tom, that we saw two different posts about uh, Joan Meyer, who was a former uh, top uh, attorney at Baker McKenzie. Uh, We saw that she moved on. And then a day later, we saw why. So why don't you tie those two, two together, Tom? So I'm not sure our listeners are really uh, aware of the background facts of this case, but uh, they are uh, really bad. And here's the situation. So uh, JBF or uh, JMJNF uh, has the world's largest anti-corruption settlement at $3.5 billion. Uh, this was with the Brazilian prosecutorial authorities, not with the United States. That's, what, not, that's why it's not on the FCPA top 10 list. Nevertheless, uh, they, the company uh, was represented by Baker McKenzie and their Brazilian affiliate, Trench Rossi. Now, Trench Rossi is a separate law firm, but they, at least at that time, were affiliated with uh, Baker uh, McKenzie and were Baker's outlet in Brazil. The uh, imbroglio turned on a prosecutor who was handling the case, or at least not perhaps not the lead prosecutor, but a prosecutor, obviously have intimate knowledge of the prosecution, was involved in the negotiations uh, with JBF. He was hired by Trench Rossi, uh, and he was given a job offer while he was working on the case and while he was sitting in negotiating sessions on behalf of the Brazilian government. And uh, clearly a conflict of interest. This was a huge scandal. It still is a huge scandal and effectively destroyed the Trench Rossi firm in uh, Brazil. Uh, Now, uh, Baker's role in this is a little bit more murky. Um, Quinn Manuel has sued on behalf, has sued Baker on behalf of JBL. Joan Myers, the former head of the uh, anti-corruption white collar group at Baker McKenzie, and she apparently wrote a memo that Michael McCagan wrote about in uh, uh, Law 360, and it's not clear what's in this memo. That's not reported, but it deals with this, uh, this issue and whether or not uh, Baker knew about this Brazilian prosecutor uh, being uh, offered a job, not only while he was employed by the uh, Brazilian prosecutors, but while he's actually working on this case. Uh, I have heard that he actually sat in meetings in America uh, with uh, Baker McKenzie attorneys present who, who knew he had been involved uh, or had been offered this job. So um, pretty clearly, uh, there could be a very, very big uh, ethical mess here. It's not clear uh, why she wrote this memo. Like I said, we don't know the contents of the memo, but the court has agreed that she can be deposed over this memo. 
and um, it's uh, a big black eye, certainly for uh, Baker McKenzie. And uh, Baker McKenzie's lawyers have vehemently objected to this deposition. They have vehemently objected to Quinn Manuel even having this memo uh, because it somehow uh, mysteriously through a whistleblower got to um, Quinn Manuel lawyers. So uh, it's a huge uh, black eye for Baker. Uh, Trent Rossi, it's just literally destroyed the firm down in uh, our firm's reputation in uh, Brazil. And uh, Joan, Joan Meyer has now had to move over to Pierce Bainbridge, or rather has moved over to Pierce Bainbridge. Uh, so we're just going to have to see uh, what comes out of the deposition. I don't know if the deposition will be sealed. Uh, since the uh, memo was filed under seal, uh, perhaps uh, the deposition itself will be sealed. Certainly she was uh, involved in the reputation, excuse me, the representation of the company uh, going forward and what she knew and what the firm knew are going to be important subjects of this uh, deposition going forward. So a uh, very interesting set of facts uh, we cite to the both reports in the uh, show notes. It was also a little bit cinematic. Uh, they talk about uh, the whistleblower actually showing up at Quinn Emanuel, only uh, identifying himself as Mr. Gu Sang. And when he wanted to leave the um, the uh, letter with the attorneys at Quinn Emanuel, uh, they refused to accept it, and instead, based on the knowledge of its existence, uh, of its existence, petitioned to get the letter. So, uh, you know me, the recovering screenwriter, I kind of could see how that is uh, all going down in my head with really fast classical music and flipping through pages of the document. So, uh, uh, as you said, Tom, there'll be some more uh, fall, uh, fallout and blowback on this one. Dutch prosecutors, Jay, have said they're going to bring criminal charges against Shell. You want to tell us about this and why it's so significant? I'd love to. And uh, basically, this picks up on something that we were uh, that was in the news several years ago about. um, Is it ENI? Is that how how it's said? Okay, so uh, Shell is going to be prosecuted for criminal charges relating to a $1.3 billion settlement for oil for an oil exploration license in Nigeria and has also been summoned by prosecutors to face charges over chemical emissions. Shell and the Italian oil firm Eni were accused of bribery in 2017 over this $1.3 billion payment that secured an exploration license for an oil block known as OPL 245 in 2011. It was alleged that although the funds were paid to the Nigerian government, the money actually went to Malibu Oil and Gas, a company linked to the former oil minister, Dan A. Tat. Um, in an email statement, DPP told CNBC on Friday that on the, ba- on the basis of the ongoing criminal investigation, the public prosecution services concluded that there are prosecutable offenses and they are not able to make any announcements any further. Uh, in November, a report from the campaign group Global Witness said that Nigeria would lose $6 billion with a B in oil revenue because of the terms of the alleged corrupt deal. So uh, I guess there's also more legal problems. DPP also confirmed that it had summoned Shell in proceedings relating to an explosion of its Majorque facility in 2014. So uh, 
bad news coming in bunches for Shell. Uh, next so, up, let oh, me just ahead, say sir. a couple of words about this Shell case, Jay, because this could be a real game changer in the uh, international fight against bribery and corruption. The key point here is that the monies paid for the block of uh, development block in question were paid directly to the Nigerian government. Under the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, a payment to a foreign government is not a corrupt payment. It has to be to a foreign official. So uh, there's no FCPA implications here. The Dutch prosecutors, as well as the Italian prosecutors in a separate proceeding, have said that Shell knew, and in Italy, E&I knew, that the money paid to the Nigerian government would be used to pay bribes. So if a prosecution is brought and if it is successful, I think it could considerably change the landscape around the international fight against bribery and corruption. Indeed. So uh, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine, number nine. For those of you, I just blew your mind. If you had the Woodstock um, soundtrack, Uh, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors, our very own Jay Rosen is now a featured columnist. Jay, you want to tell us about that? Yeah. um, A couple of weeks ago, uh, Sarah Haddon reached out to me from Corporate Compliance and Insights, and she uh, was noticing that there could be an opportunity for somebody to come in and look at things from the monitor's perspective, and she was very kind to uh, uh, give me a column. And yesterday, uh, with the new look of CCI, Corporate Compliance Insights, uh, I had my first uh, blog, opinion blog, appear yesterday and uh, got some very kind receptions. And I look forward uh, to be uh, involved with the exciting new look and the new rollout of CCI. And I believe you're going to have an interview with Sarah next week. Is that correct? Uh, That's week. uh, That's correct, rather. Uh, Sarah's going to start her own podcast. So uh, excited for her about that. Excited for her and her new role as uh, not only the owner, but the editor-in-chief of CCI. And uh, the new website design has rolled out, and that's the first step. Uh, if you're interested in uh, contributing uh, in any way, shape, or form, I know Sarah would love to hear from you. So we'll have more on that uh, next week going forward. So congratulations, Jay. Thank you, Tom. So um, last oh, – go ahead. I was just going to say uh, here at the end, I uh, just wanted to highlight, Jay, my five-part series this week was a continuation of my opinion release papers podcast. I took a look at uh, five this week. 1003 on charitable donations, 1002 on hiring foreign official as agents, 0701 on travel for foreign officials, 0702 travel and entertainment for foreign officials, and uh, 1101, which is really about the process of opinion release. So uh, check those out. I'm going to continue this series periodically. I have a lot of fun with it, and uh, it's an area that I don't think a lot of compliance practitioners know as much about as uh, other areas. So opinion releases can be a very good source of uh, information. So, Jay, uh, when uh, when do you return to uh, the homestead and the twins? Uh, I'm going to fly out uh, later this afternoon. So, uh, as I said before, uh, we'll hear Brian Benskowski speak for about a half hour. And then the final panel here, which looks very interesting, is uh, ethical challenges raised by the conduct of prosecutors, defense counsel, and legal commentators. So there's going to be um, a group of 
uh, practitioners there. Uh, Sandy Weinberg, who's been uh, involved with the organization here for a long time. Laura Barcelone, Neil Eggleston, uh, the Honorable Trey Gowdy. That name might ring a bell to certain people. Wow. Gary Neftalis, Mithli Raman, and uh, Professor Jonathan Turley. So that's uh, going to be the way to end things up. One more thing that I just wanted to touch on a little bit. We are, uh, um, there's a farewell speech that Rod Rosenstein gave this week in Washington, D.C., and he hits upon a lot of the themes that he talks about, about not giving lip, lip service to compliance, but actually have a living, uh, breathing program that does work. And I want to just quote from his last three uh, paragraphs here. Uh, a lot of times when uh, the DAG speaks, he, uh, like Tom, like Shakespeare, and refer, refers to different uh, literary uh, allegories. And he says, um, in Shakespeare's play, Henry IV, a prince brags about his ability to call up ghosts. He proudly proclaims, I can summon spirits from the vasty deep. His skeptical friend mockingly replies, why, so can I, and so can anyone. But the question is, will they come when you call for them? Similarly, just talking about compliance is meaningless. A culture of compliance needs to be integrated into corporate policies. Employees should be trained and encouraged to think about compliance issues when making business decisions, and there should be regular audits to identify problems. Finally, in the spirit of promoting a culture of integrity, uh, Dad wanted to leave us with the wisdom of an ancient proverb. If you desire to know a person's character, consider his friends. You can help protect your business by using caution when selecting associates and by ensuring appropriate oversight. Always make sure that you can stand proudly with the company you keep. So um, while that is good advice for ethics and compliance, I'm wondering if there's also um, some message that the DAG is saying about being judged by the company you keep. So, Jay, that's a great way for us to end um, our podcast this week. I want to just give a shout out to Rod Rosenstein because I think he's meant a lot to the compliance community. He has certainly left his imprint on the Department of Justice and FCPA enforcement um, with the 2017 uh, corporate uh, FCPA corporate enforcement policy, he has continually talked about not only the need for enforcement, but from my perspective, perhaps more importantly, the need for robust, effective, ongoing, and living and breathing operationalized compliance programs. So I know he's taken a lot of heat uh, for his alleged light touch, but he has left his imprint as well as uh, just about any DAG. Uh, well, they all do, but he's certainly left his own imprint. So I'm going to give uh, Rod Rosenstein a shout out. And uh, wherever you may end up uh, on your next journey, Rod, I look forward to uh, to it. Perfect. So on behalf of my colleague, Tom Fox, who's in Orlando, not riding anything with an e-ticket, but learning about podcasting, and myself, Jay Rosen, coming to you from the city of New Orleans, We'd like to thank you for tuning in to This Week in FCPA, episode 145 for the week ending March 8, 2019, the Conferencing in America edition. Have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. 
I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week, where we take a look at some of next week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.